I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upen. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by William J. Billy Joe Harris, who is currently writing a chapbook of imitations and afters of Sappho and Catullus. Sappho, he deems a blues poet, and Catullus, a vernacular poet, whose chapbooks in the works include one consisting of Lucifer poems, who, in the process of writing poems with cartoons, has been studying Patchen, Kenneth Patchen and Blake, among others, and who for many years a professor at Kansas, is now in New York, Brooklyn, to be specific, and continues as a member of the jazz faculty seminars at Columbia University. And by Alden Nielsen, whose current critical work is appearing in Black Scholar, in Obsidian, in The Black Jacobin's Reader, whose poetry has been examined in a special section of a recent issue uh, of the Italian Journal of American Studies and whose new book of poetry, congratulations, Alan, called Trey, is being published by Make Now Press and whose many, many fabulous heat strings recordings are featured widely throughout Penn Sound. And by Tyrone Williams, among whose many books of poetry are On Spec, The Hero Project of the Century, Adventure of Pi, C.C. and Howell, who teaches literature and theory at Xavier University in Cincinnati, who is the editor of African American Literature Revised Edition 2008, and whose commentary series published in Jacket 2, titled Hunches, Hedges, etc., (laughs) offers micro-reviews of 39 books of poetry, a series I highly recommend to everyone. Tyrone, thanks for making the trip all the way from Southern Ohio to be with us. Thank you. (laughs) It's great to have you here at the Writer's House. Um, and I guess you know that I'm a big fan of your work from maybe having listened to the poem talk on two poems from mm-hmm. On Spec. Let the record show that Tyrone is nodding. Yes, you have listened to that. <laughs> was it hard to hear? Uh, no, <laughs> no, not at all. No, I didn't mean that like auditorily, but <laughs> did we do okay? Was yes, it? yes, it was excellent. I've yes. never asked for feedback like this. <laughs> a little nervous. <laughs> Alan, welcome back to the Writer's House. Glad to be here. Really delighted to have you back here again. And congratulations on Trey. Do you have a uh, like elevator pitch on what Trey is about? Like, what what would people find when they get to that book? Well, the the, the title sequence actually grows out of the uh, events of, surrounding the George Zimmerman trial. It actually grows out of a Facebook encounter. Oddly enough, uh, one of the publishers involved with uh, Make Now Press, who ordinarily do conceptual books, uh, encouraged me to do something along the line of, of Reznikov's testimony. Oh, cool! And I said no. But then I said, I'll do this other thing. <laughs> oh, so they wanted it to be a project where you Well, there was just like an idea they had. And, and taking documentation they used so on much Trayvon yeah, Martin. Yeah. Yeah. So I did something a little different, as okay. uh, my friend Tyrone already knows. <laughs> well, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, the book, Trey. Uh, and thanks for all the Heat Strings recordings over uh, more, the years. More coming. More coming. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> You're such a source of that material. Billy Joe, thank you. Welcome back. Uh, so am I allowed to wish you a happy birthday? Sure. <laughs> can I say the number? No. Yes, you can <laughs> say that. Stammering the number. <laughs> yeah. 75. Congratulations. Coming up. Coming Congratulations. Up, so we're, the four of us are here today to talk about a poem by Lorenzo Thomas, 
And the poem was called An Ark Still Open, and it was written as a commemoration of the muralist John Biggers, who had died in January 2001, we think. We know 2001. Uh, the poem was written on the last day of that month, January 2001, and it was published as part of a John Biggers memorial feature in a magazine produced on the campus of the University of Houston downtown, where since 1997 there had hung a huge 10-foot by 27-foot Biggers mural called Salt Marsh. Now, Lorenzo Thomas was himself a beloved professor at UHD for many years. So our text of the poem comes from the UHD publication, and our recording from Penn Sound's Lorenzo Thomas author page was made at the University of California at San Diego, where Thomas went to give a reading in May of 2001, just a little later. So here now is Lorenzo Thomas performing An Ark Still Open. John Biggers created great murals in Houston and elsewhere. And this poem is about him. He died in uh, January. The poem is called An Ark Still Open, in memory of John Thomas Biggers. Words, like all splendid things, familiar or obscure, can tarnish over time. Telling a story is a burnishing, smoothing and polishing the syllables to bright reflection. We call that memory. The ancients said, losing an elder is to lose a library. Then they invented art to stem such loss. We are men of woman born and human being. Singers we are, and makers aspiring toward manhood, womanhood, a sanity of spirit known as grace. We thrive on mysteries, what can be made with fire and water, wood and stone, carefully selected mud. Work authorizes shapeliness, but vision creates form. When care and kindness, compassion and concern direct the mind, the motion of the intellect becomes a dance, and the deft hand can speak, can weave or work sacred geometries that section space into the arcs of humane understanding and joyous trace of song. The watcher then becomes the seer and the doer. The wall records the hand's reach as the hand records the minds. That was the way he took. That was Doc's path, griot, storyteller, soft-spoken but loquacious sage, alchemist of words and images, child of Anansi, spinner of magic phrase. Sometimes this world of entropy and haste seems nothing more than a vast depot with every one of us, stressed, nonchalant, traveling light, or heavy burdened, in passage, chasing the tortoise and the hare in endless round. Treasure our moments and our meetings here. Treasure the story and the memory that will remain to testify when we embark upon the next stage of our never-ending journey. And that's what I saw when I looked at uh, John Biggers' paintings because every painting was an entire history of the world, of all the whole universe. And he told it through fairy tales and, and nursery rhymes and folk tales and things that had been taught to him when he was a child. His mother was a washerwoman. And he said what he learned from his mother was how the universe was created 
because she took fire and water and dirty old clothes. And when she was through, they were something different than they had been. <laughs> well, given that afterward, it's a little hard to leave Biggers aside for a second, but I'm going <laughs> to ask us to do that. We'll get back to him. But leaving Biggers aside, can anyone begin the conversation by talking about what kind of art, leaving Biggers' particular art aside, what kind of art is he celebrating here? What are some of the characteristics of the art that he admires? Well, I think it's all in the couple of into the first part. And you'll notice he doesn't read the section numbers uh, in the poem. He also ch- changes what in, in the printed version. He mentions uh, Biggers by his first name, whereas he calls him by his nickname. Uh, Doc. He recites the poem there, yeah. yeah. But, you know, that work authorizes shapeliness, but vision creates forms. It's one of those aphorisms you might hear in an art school or an English class that the more you think about it, the less useful it becomes. But that final anecdote really nails it down because the woman has these materials. She's engaged in this common labor and she transforms them. Uh, the work authorizes the shapeliness. But what he's clearly getting at is is the uh, the human act of making, the human act of uh, bringing form about. And that's what always attracted Lorenzo across a wide variety of art modes. As, as, as often is the case, Tyrone, when, when, one, when a, one artist celebrates another, often... Um, he or she is talking about, you know, one's own art. To that extent, and Alan already sort of suggested this, to that extent, what do you see as Lorenzo's own poetics in this art that he's celebrating in Biggers? Well, I'm not sure about his his poetics, but definitely in terms of, if we think about his career and the move he made to Houston to work with the art, the community down there. The, I mean, the lines that strike me in relationship to that question is the end of the first stanza in part two. The watcher then becomes the seer and the doer. The wall record, records the hand's reach as the hand records the minds. Uh, this notion of passing on, you know, I think that was very much a part of what Lorenzo was about. This notion that art isn't just for the maker, but also for those who who um, observe it, listen to it, read it, and then they too become makers. Yeah. Bill, Joe, your thoughts on this? Yeah, my thought is we're talking about what, you know, how we describe the art we're seeing. And what struck me from the first reading is, you know, of humane understanding and a sanity of spirit known as grace. And so there is this you know, there's pushing art as being a humane undertaking. One thing you want to notice is that you were talking about the parallels between his own art and the art he's talking about. You see that, too, in the parallels between poetic history and art history. In the same way that Lorenzo is the product of what we might call a sort of second great mural age, all those wonderful murals from not only the black uh, arts era but also the Chicano Renaissance and so forth um, – all of it very much inspired by that earlier mural stage that Biggers is representative of. Similarly, in poetry, we have this wonderful reference to Pound and the dance of the intellect there. Um, Pound was somebody who was always of recurring interest to a Lorenzo Thomas, but Lorenzo was, you know, post-Olson, po- even post-Baraka, although they were alive at the same time and knew one another. So you have that same kind of reiteration of a, of a modern rupture and breakthrough coming through both in the poetry and in the visual arts. The ancients said losing an elder is to lose a library. Then they invented art to stem such loss. The, that then is really powerful. Does anybody make sense of it? 
I always read it ironically in the sense that that statement was an example, the evidence that the art was already there. <laughs> you know, the, art, oh. the art had already been created in the saying of I such see. a thing. Art yeah. with a capital A, maybe right. it was superfluous at that <laughs> point. Tyrone, yes? But that's the way I re- read it too, was that because he, I mean, well, the other thing interesting about that is that he contrasted to the library, losing the elders to lose the library, then they invented art. So the library seems to precede um, art in terms of as a as a, as an archive. So you have this, you know, this idea of, of the elder as an archive, and then um, then you you have to externalize that to a certain extent with this thing called art. Yeah. Well, so there's, this is- there's also a sense that. Like elders, libraries can be lost. Right, right. Art, capital A, A, as opposed to any individual work of art, continues. Except, Except. Billy Joe, (laughs) if we think about the passing of Biggers or the passing of the elder griot storyteller, and we think about the sort of essential idea that if we respect the elders and ancients, then we carry in ourselves a tradition of passing on so that you never have to lose the library, right? Mm-hmm. So when we get to Grio storyteller, soft-spoken but loquacious sage, that sounds like he's talking particularly about a person. Biggers, presumably, he's honoring him. It becomes elegiac. But by that time, he's got a more general thing to say. So maybe in the end, Billy Joe, and that last, and part three is very positive and elegiac. So maybe in the end, there's no loss here when someone passes yeah. because he's done the work. Yeah, uh, I find it really interesting that Biggers doesn't come in until late, late in the poem. So you set up this whole art thing. But yeah, the ending, I go back, treasure our moments and our meetings here, treasure the story and the memory. Okay, so that's the art. And it starts out in the first section, telling a story, a burnishing smoothing and polishing the syllables to bright, uh, to bright reflection, we call that memory. So you got this thing about storytelling, and you have this thing about memory, and this seems like this is what art, this is what art does, and it does come back, and it does, you know, it comes up in that last stanza. That's a really great passage. Um, Tyrone and Alan, what do we make of this? It seems to me that passage that Billy Joe was just referring to says that the process of making something, making art, is memory. The process process. of making art is memory. That's a complicated concept. Can we say more about that? That opening gesture, which also, you know, uh, calls to mind griots and so forth, um, burnishing words, you have to be able to recall the word to memory in order to, to do this. Before he talks about losing the library, he talks about something becoming tarnished. And that's an interesting way of thinking about this. Um, one thing you do here in the poem talks is, is retrieve poems that people have kind of forgotten about yeah. or they think they already know it. In this it's, case, we didn't even – it's a kind of a <laughs> yeah. fugitive poem in a way. Well, it? in fact, one, I'm really delighted that you're doing this because um, there, there are a few poems that we only have in recorded form so far. And uh, fortunately, because uh, Tyrone and Jean-Philippe Marco helped us find this in, in its published form, we know what the lineation would be. You know, these other late poems, we have no idea where the line breaks might be or anything like that. Because we uh, don't have the manuscripts? Exactly, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, we should probably mention, since people may be wondering at this point, Lorenzo himself only lived 
four years after uh, this poem and this recording. And it, it's always a little sad for me to listen to this recording because if you listen to earlier recordings, you can hear a change that's happened in his voice due to some surgery that he had had not too long before that. Yeah, you can really hear it. Yeah, yeah and can. most of us had hoped that, that we'd have Lorenzo with us for another 40 years after that surgery, but it just wasn't to be. So there's always a, you know, it's, we are in fact trying to do what the poem is it? talking about. This yeah. is a pre -allergy. Exactly, exactly. yeah. yeah. And it seems to me he's he's already thinking about his own mortality mm -hmm. in that in that respect. Um, but in terms of memory, I mean, one of the, you know the line one of the lines in that first we call that memory we call that memory <laughs> that thing we call memory yeah. is the line about stemming of loss. Mm -hmm. Invented art to stem such loss. And the way I read that was that it's only partially successful that eventually it will get lost, which is all the more reason you need others in to carry on to create new forms of art. But what's interesting, the title, so an arc still open, that still suggests that, you know, it's still open, but at some point it will not be open. Well, uh, so you, you can't hear that title without thinking about Martin Luther King right, and now President right. Obama and the arc of history, history right. and bending towards justice and so forth. And I, you, Lorenzo was intimately familiar with Martin Luther King's speeches, so he had to have that at least in partly mind. in mind and as well. And the phrase where it appears in part two, the arcs of humane understanding. Humane, right. So that's clearly right. a reference to King. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's look at the stanza that starts, We Thrive on Mysteries. Um, this is a poem that seems to identify the making of things, carefully selected mud. It's very um, sculptural, yeah. mm -hmm. sculptural. Mm -hmm. but it's also genetic, as in Genesis. There's an originary, oh, the see. genesis of art, and, the gen and mud, of course, is the genesis of the person. Right. Right, in Genesis. So, although in Genesis there's no actual selection at work in the <laughs> no no that's true that's not carefully selected but 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 that aside um, this is a commitment to um, uh, uh, unreason or pre reason mysteries history thought of a different as as transmitted in a different way can we say more about how we connect the irrationalism uh, of the mysteries to this this particular kind of making art and well, form. One of the keys is that movement from the first line of that stanza to the second. You know, if you just said we thrive on mysteries, people start thinking about God, the afterlife, and so forth. But what are the mysteries? What can be made with fire and water? The mystery is this act of making oh. and what can be made from it. Yep. We thrive yeah, like on that. the mystery of this ability in ourselves. And specifically, it's got to be, I mean, fire and water and mud, that's um, clay. That's, that's firing ceramic. That's yeah. very particular. So let's talk about Biggers. I mean, we can't have this poem talk without, no, without talking about his art. No. So um, the mural that he's referring to is called Salt Marsh, and it was... It was uh, put in the H University of Houston's, downtown Houston's campus in the Student Life Center. Um, and it takes as its subject the salt marsh that maybe is still there, in any case was there near the university grounds, which Biggers identified as a place where urban life and nature converge. Hmm. We can talk about that particularly, or we can talk about his mural murals in general. Well, that's a characteristic approach of his. He's a southerner originally out of North Carolina, goes to school at what was then still called Hampton Institute, not thinking about art, 
at least not. We're as, talking as about bigger, right, yeah, right, not right, as, right. as a career at any rate. Uh, but then he becomes a student uh, of this uh, G- German Jewish refugee. One of the great untold stories that I want people to think about when they're thinking about this poem and this background is the number of German Jewish refugees who were at historically black colleges during this time period. Because this was was a place for them to get work. Exactly. And this was a place, these were places that were not anti-Semitic. Exactly. They didn't have the quotas and so forth. Um, That professor moves to Penn State. Biggers follows him and becomes an art education student. Your institution. My institution, which we're going to talk about again a little bit later. Um, Then he winds up at Texas Southern University, one of the great historically black colleges. And that's how he comes to meet Lorenzo and so forth. But you find that combination of rural southern and urbanity uh, linking so much of his thinking in his work. He lives in Houston, but he has that rural southern background as well. So Tyrone, Billy Joe, something to add about Bigger's art that strikes you as important or relevant? When I, when I think about, uh, you know, particularly the, this particular work the, um, of his, I can, see, I can see to a certain extent why um, Thomas, you know, would be interested in him, and just in general, um, because this is a work that seems to. I'm looking at a picture for those who, since this is radio. For those listening in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> Which we can re- reproduce somewhat in color right. um, on the Poem Talk program right. note. So I think that'd be wonderful. Along with the, along with the poem as it was printed oh, in the okay. newsletter. Yeah. Okay. But it's a, it's a celebration of. Of making, you know, it's a celebration yes. of creation. How so? Um, I mean, though, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no go but ahead. I, you know, I was going through, and I, th- I thought Alden began that. Mm-hmm. But he's a maker. Right. I mean, ever, it's all about being being a maker, and that gets repeated. Right, 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 exactly. And I guess, and they're both makers. And they're both makers in that in that sense. And there's and there's no divide. There's no tension. Um, at least not hostile tension between culture and, and nature in in that respect. Um, which, you know, this may seem a bit too even stereotypical, but, you know, it may very well have a lot to do with the Southern heritage um, aspect of, for both of them. Uh, there's a, 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 a note, a footnote uh, that will help us with a passage in the poem. Um, and in the newsletter put out by the university to go along with this um, in, honors, in honor of Biggers, it notes that the mural was inspired by an ancient African children's story about the never-ending chase between mm. a rabbit and a turtle. Oh. Mm-hmm. There you go. Representing renewal and changing rhythm of the season. So you have the salt marsh interaction with the city and nature. And you have the tortoise and the hare, which is referred to in the last stanza of section right. two. So why don't we look at that and figure out what relevance it has. Sometimes this world of entropy and haste seems nothing more than a vast depot with every one of us stressed, nonchalant, traveling light or heavy burdened in passage dash, chasing the tortoise and the hare in endless round. Yeah. Anybody uh, want to take a step? Well, I was that? just going to say, I've always been struck by the, the syntax of, of that one. Um, when you hear stressed, you do not expect the next word to be nonchalant. So right, absolutely. <laughs> and similarly, well, it goes back to every one of us, you know, right, but he right. doesn't have to say both the stressed and the nonchalant. Uh, and he does that throughout this passage. Uh, in the depot. depot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what is that? <laughs> it's pretty dark. I mean, nothing more than a vast depot. Well, depots and we're all tend to have murals around. in them, too. 
What's that? Depots often have murals in them. In fact, they used uh, to all have murals in them. As in the mails, as in the post office, for one thing. Yeah, but uh, train stations. Lorenzo, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Lorenzo and John Biggers grew up with trains. <laughs> it, this made me sad to read sometimes this world of entropy and haste seems nothing more than a vast depot. I mean, that's sad. But entropy yeah, and but haste. Some of us are rushing to catch a train, and others of us just sitting there looking at the mural. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he probably also was thinking of Pynchon's famous short story with the two apartments, the one having the wild. Oh, party. that's a cool one. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Sure Can you spell that out? Well, it's one of his early, earliest stories. It was collected later in a book called Slow Learner, typical Pynchon uh, self deprecating humor. Uh, and the basic situation is there are these two apartments. I think one's above the other. Yeah, definitely. And, and in one, yeah. there's this wild party going on. And in the other one, there's this person who's like a germaphobe and, does, and is trying to keep everything out. And of course, the the whole point of the story is that you can't hermetically seal your life, that these things are going to come into one another. You know, the depot is almost a perfect image for the kind of bringing together of the concept of entropy and, and haste simultaneously. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So what do we yeah, do with the tortoise and the hare? Because my sense of the story of the tortoise and the hare, it's, uh, yeah, I got that. But I mean, tortoise and hare. So the version of the story I know from childhood is, you know, that the tortoise wins the race because the hare is assuming Slow speed. Slow and steady. Slow right. and steady. So I read this and pr- for, please pardon me for the pedestrian reading, but I'm kind of famous for that. Um, <laughs> art's effect is, you know, generations of humanity, uh, the arc of humane understanding. Art's, art's effect is the tortoise, is, is, is the slow, is the nonchalant. No. But we're, no, we are not. chasing the but tortoise and the hare. They're both being chased. But it's yeah, exactly. each other, right. and they're chasing each other. To, yeah, yeah, so I, that part... We I are chasing <laughs> after the story. Yeah, okay, I get it. But should we go back to sad because you were sad? Yeah. Uh, it seems like, but the, the last stanza, treasure our moments and our meetings here. Oh, my gosh. That's even sadder. Treasure the, well, treasure. I mean, I think they that's remain good. They testify. Yeah. Uh, treasure the story and the memory. You know, that's the art, art and all that. Uh, that will remain to testify when we embark yeah, there's so there the LG word. Mm-hmm. He's getting right. he's getting in the boat and he's yeah. going off. Sure. Yeah. But the idea of the art is going to endure. That is positive. Yes, of course. It's <laughs> no, no, I'm just sad about this as a pre-elegy. Um, let's yes. t- the, uh, uh, Tyrone help us. We've talked about help it. Us, I, <laughs> help us, Tyrone. Help us. There's t- no help for help us. us. <laughs> help us with the title. We've talked about it, but I still want to talk a little more about it. An arc still open. It's a beautiful title. Well, as I said, I. To me, it's, and I mean, it strikes me as a little sad in that, in that way, too, because be, um, it's not an arc open. It's an arc still open so that there is still time. There is still a place for making and so forth. But you do have this sense that um, it's, you know, I think about that title. Does this apply to, you know, just to John Biggers. Well, obviously it does because each person is is mortal. Certainly, it would apply to to Lorenzo. Um, but I also think of this as even though he's talking about makers and the future generations and those who will come up, you know, after and so forth. Uh, and even though he says in the last lines, the last words, the never-ending journey, that stand those lines stand in tension with this. At least the way I read mm-hmm. this, as an arc still open, because again. It suggests that at some 
future point, the arc will close into a circle, presumably. We are men of woman born and human being. Singers we are, and makers aspiring toward manhood, womanhood, a sanity of spirit known as grace. We thrive on mysteries. What can be made with fire and water, wood and stone, carefully selected mud. Work authorizes shapeliness, but vision creates form. Look, what I'd like us to do is do two more rounds of going all the way around. One, one round would be for each of us, I'll invite you guys to do this, to say something about Lorenzo Thomas's poetry that people listening to this who will only know this poem because of this episode, that they should know. What else about Lorenzo should... This is not an entirely characteristic poem of Lorenzo, so it would be worth talking about his other work. And then the second time around, I just want to invite us all to have one last thought on this poem that we didn't get a chance to say. Who wants to start about, you know, what is it about Lorenzo Thomas that people should know about? Well, I'll just start with a quick anecdote because it's characteristic of his humor. Uh, There's a video you can find online of of one of his talks when he's uh, remembering the early days in the Umbra movement. Remember, he was the very youngest poet in the Mm -hmm. Umbra group in New York. And he says, they noticed that the poet, the black poets who were getting any attention were um, African writers writing in f- French badly translated. And he pauses and said, so I tried to write like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, of course, that's not at all how he started to write. But if you look at some of the early poems, you can, you can hear Césaire in there. You can find Damas, Senghor, and so forth. Um, there's much less of that here. But as, as you said, this is also somewhat different from that sort of early and, and mid-period Lorenzo poetry. This is a late style. Very late, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I'm going over my time, but I want to mention very quickly, uh, along with a wonderful scholar named Laura Verana, I'm working on the collected poems, which we hope to have so out. you're putting that on the record, so that yes, commits you. <laughs> it commits me. It hasn't committed a press yet, but it will, it will commit <laughs> How me. How many pages will it likely be? Is well, it depends on whether they let us have a poem per page or not, which publishers don't like to do very much. Oh, but it's so much prettier that way. Let's just say how many poems do you think there are? Well, if it were a poem per page, it would be at least 350, 400 pages. He he wasn't a terribly prolific poet, but he was slow and steady, and there's quite a lot of wonderful work. Great. Okay, thanks. Billy Joe, a thought about Lorenzo Thomas? Uh, My first thought is it's really a shame that he's not better known. Yeah. Because from re you know rereading him, thinking about this, looking at some other poems, he's he's a, he's a beautiful poet. He makes incredible lines. Uh, he is an incredible lyric voice. He also you know creates arguments very well. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you, Tyrone. Well, I, you know, this, I think of, of Lorenzo. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of anecdotes, but I'll pass. I won't. Well, tell us one. Tell us. One. <laughs> tell tell you one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell the one that's, that I've probably told the most often is the first time I met Lorenzo around, it was, it had to be the 1977 or 78. Um, my friend Barbara Henning in New York uh, invited me to do a reading with Lorenzo on a radio station um, at uh, LIU. So I flew into New York and I was looking forward to very much meeting Lorenzo. So we sit down sort of like this at our respective mics. And I think, I don't recall whose idea this was, but maybe it was Barbara's. Maybe he, him. He, instead of just doing a reading of, you know, you read, then I'll read, we decided to read each, you know, read poems, you know, go back and forth reading poems. 
So, unbeknownst that this would happen, I read a poem of some sort, and his re- <laughs> his response to that was, "Oh yeah, well, listen to this." <laughs> no kidding. It, it quickly became a kind of which I was not prepared for. Kind of dozens, you know, yeah, kind really. of going back and forth, and I had I was you know clueless about what was going on, so I got. Taken as it you were, probably re- you probably read your best poem first, and then, yeah, you know, exactly. I blew my wad right there, and that was it. <laughs> All right, let's do one one round of final thoughts um, on this discussion today. Uh, an idea you had coming in, but you didn't have a chance to say about the poem or about Biggers. So, who wants to start, Alden? Uh, okay, well, I'll pick up um, the opening of that second section. Uh, really does so much. Um, when care and kindness, compassion, concern direct the mind, the motion of the intellect becomes a dance. But the implication there, as we well know these days, is it can it can be otherwise. Okay? Uh, we don't always have care and kindness directing the mind and so forth. But also that part about dance. Two of his late publications were called Time Step and Dancing on Main Street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Chasing After the Tortoise and the Hare, these poems will still be dancing, waiting for us to come to them, like like a great tap dancer doing that time step. That's beautiful. Thank you. Billy Joe, final thought? Uh, final thought, I want to, it's sort of a thought I've said before, is I, I do want to emphasize that it is, a, it is a humane art, and this is a celebration of, of art in general and the art that uh, um, Biggers and, and Lorenzo's art as well. Something else is... You know, there's a there's a poem that that Alden uh, published in an anthology of of Lorenzo's called Song, and it starts out so simple and so beautiful and so lyrical, and then at one point you say, "How do you get from here to there?" <laughs> and there's this whole, you know, it's a hard poem if you if you pay any attention to it. Yeah, oh, that's great. Thank you. Tyrone, top that. We've now we've <laughs> we've shot our one. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, now when you go. <laughs> um, well, I would I wanted to talk about the cover of the newsletter, which I've re- reprinted here, uh, because it seems to me to really not that they necessarily meant for it to do this, but it seems to encapsulate everything that Biggers and Lorenzo was about. Because on the one hand, we have the you know, the uh, obituary in the left-hand corner with a picture next to it. And then right below that, we have Lorenzo's poem, An Ark Still Open. And then right below that, an article about building for the future of the state (laughs) capital (laughs) so that we move from the past to the future through this ark right in almost in the middle, as it were. Uh, That's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, that's the universities at work. Uh, My (laughs) final thought, uh, the, the watcher then becomes the seer and the doer's Key, key passage, and we talked about it. Um, art is a kind of, it's, a, it's participatory, it's, it's, it's yeah. doing, and you have, I think that's important in the Biggers. But then the next couplet, where we turn toward Biggers as an elegiac, as a figure to elegize, the wall records the hand's reach as the hand records the mind. So partly this is a reference to the work of making this giant mural right so you get the wall is recording the reach of this painter but i but given the fact that we that the poem is talking about elemental elementalism fire water mysteries creation i can't help but think that so far as we know and we knew this in 2001 the first 
art for its own sake that we have are the hands of mm. early humans, basically just registering their hands on the wall, big mural of hands of different sizes of, of early Homo sapiens. And of course, this is just another way in which this poem wants, us to, wants to remind us that human art is, that's about 45,000 years ago. So human art is a very slow process, but it seems to be the same. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all four of us, if we're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Billy Joe, you look like you've got paradise in your head. Oh, that's the best description of Billy Joe I've ever heard. (laughs) Always, by the way. Right. 75 and still got paradise in his head. I'm still 74 until March. (laughs) March 12th. Yeah, but by the time this gets released, you'll be be three quarters of a century century old. Wow. It's an awful way to put it. Anyway, I recently saw the film Patterson, which takes place in Patterson, New Jersey. It's about a poet named. Patterson. And the and reference in the world of modern poetry is to William Carl. Oh, to William, which is very much uh, spelled out in the movie. It is. But I think it's, it's a film worth seeing in the film uh, and enjoyable. In the film, he recites William Carlos Williams, This Is Just to Say, you know, the yeah. plum poem. Right. And, and the wife is quite thrilled by it. And I think that, you know, that's the aesthetic of the poem, you know, mm-hmm. celebration of the of the ordinary world. Mm, great. So Patterson, a f- first time I think a movie is yeah, recommended. Yeah, right. Jarmish, it's Jarmish. And it's the real deal. And hope people can see it because there's a problem about seeing it outside of New York, Los Angeles, which is always a shame. Alden, uh, gather some paradise. Given our topic, I want to quickly mention there are still two Lorenzo Thomas books that you can get. Uh, His last one, uh, Dancing on Main Street from the wonderful people at Coffeehouse Press. But also Blue Wind still has lots of copies of their uh, second edition of Chances Are uh, a few. So uh, you can get those uh, from Amazon or someplace else right now. As for something new, uh, speaking in North Carolina, part of that wonderful group around Duke University, Ken Taylor, one of the people that's behind the Lute and Drum uh, publication, has this wonderful little book that just came out last year called Self-Portrait as Joseph Cornell. You could just stare at the title for three years, you know, but you'll, you'll get lost in those poems. They're really intriguing. Great. Thank you. Tyrone, gather some paradise. Ooh, I, I can't top uh, those at all, but um, but I did, I did this watch. This isn't a competition. It's not a competition. <laughs> Lorenzo's made you forever. <laughs> <Right, right, laughs> Don't worry, the tortoise will finally finish across the line at the end. But I, I did watch. I, I, I downloaded uh, a long time ago. But I finally watched a lecture. That's what it was. It was a long lecture too, um, over an hour. I think an hour and a half. Uh, from Fred Moten. Oh, yeah. Um, on... <laughs> that guy is a stem winder. <laughs> he can really do it, huh? Yes. And the title is, is called um, The Blur and the Breath. And it's it's a play on Wittgenstein's Blue and Brown Notebooks. Uh, but he's talking about different forms of art and about and the blur is among a, a number of things. It's the in between stage. It's the it's not. So it's an argument against sovereignty. It's an argument against authenticity. It's somewhat directed at the black arts movement or the black power movement, I should say, uh, more specifically. 
because he begins talking about Stokely Carmichael, but it's, uh, you know, it's Fred, so it's all over the place. Uh, but <laughs> and <laughs> so how where do we get it? it? Yeah, yeah. It's, how do we find sorry, it? It's on, it's on, um, on I, I think I, yeah, I think I, I someone so, sent me a link, but it was a, it's a YouTube so the video. search terms, I was, Fred Moten, M-O-T-E-N, and, and then the blur, blur, that should get it. And yeah, that should get it. Well, yeah, I think for, it's coming out in print. Uh, what was one it, volume? What was one volume when I first saw it is now three volumes of Fred Moten essays that are on their way out under the collective title "Consent Not to Be a Single Thing." I think is oh, the yeah, title. that's right. And yes. I think yeah. this is part of probably that's volume probably, three or something. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, this this Gathering Paradise has just exploded, so I might as well do three Gathering Paradises. First of all, Billy Joe Harris, William J. Harris, and I a couple of years ago at your apartment, uh, your house in Brooklyn, had a long conversation about your life and your work. And I just want to recommend that people go to your Penn Sound page where that recording of an hour and a half of our talking about your early years uh, in Ohio uh, and then on the West Coast in graduate school, uh, Berkeley with uh, Nate Mackey and others and just Stanford. Stanford. Stanford did I, oops, oops. Yeah, right. I, I said the B word. There. Um and uh, as for Tyrone Williams, uh, by the time this comes out, anyone could go to Tyrone Williams' uh, already quite vast Pensound page and pick up a, a, a reading that was done in February of 2016 at the Kelly Writer's House and, um, and hear what he's working on. And I'm assuming that that recording will include some new things. Am I right about that? Uh you mean you said twenty sixteen? You mean I meant of twenty seventeen? Oh, okay. Because I'm thinking, mark of history. Was I just here? <laughs> you know, was I'm I, really, I'm I mean, really screwing up. I was trying to use that weird conditional future because the, the recording is being made. This recording. Is being what made will have been true? It will be true. Whatever. Anyway, you're reading some new things tonight. Is what yes, yes, yes. I will be reading some new things tonight for me, as they say, a forthcoming. Manuscript. There's already some great things um, on that page. <laughs> and as for Alden Nielsen, uh, I said I mentioned heat strings before, but I really, what I really challenge you to do, yes, what I really challenge people to do is to um, not just go to Alan's own page, but look, maybe just go to Pensound and search for heat strings and just see and admire the work he's been doing since, you know, the early 90s, I think might be the earliest recording, 91 or something. Just, you know, the mo some of the most important early recordings. I mean, 90s are not early in terms of recording technology, but in terms of early knowing. Early in terms of us. <laughs> early in terms of us, but also early in terms of our knowing that this reading would be important yeah. someday. And without that, without having done that, we'd be poorer. We wouldn't have so many of the recordings that we like to talk about. And, of course, Trey, which is coming out. So, well, that's all the uh, world of entropy and haste we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests. This has been fun. Tyrone Williams, Billy Joe Harris, and Alvin Nielsen. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner. And to Poem Talk's editor, the very same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, Stephen Ross, Rachel Blau Duplessis, and Ariel Reznikoff join me to talk about some translinguistic poems from Oxudo by Antardos. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.
This is Zach Cardiner, Poem Talk's editor. Al and I, and the rest of the Poem Talk team here at the Kelly Writers House, hope you enjoyed this new episode. We wanted to add a special word of thanks here at the end to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, whose generous grant supporting Poem Talk, among other outreach projects, has helped make this episode possible. Thank you so much to the Lights. And thanks to our regular and intermittent listeners, one and all. We'll see you again in a month with another new episode of Poem Talk.